Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Welcome, everyone, to City Beautiful Church. Uh, my name is Ryan. I'm pastor here. Anybody, this is your first time? Any first timers? Great. That's a, that's a wonderful sign. Well, welcome. Um, we're currently in this series called Signposts in the Mist. Um, and, and what we're doing with this series is kind of twofold. Number one, we're trying to rescue and redeem the Old Testament. I think for a lot of us, the way that we've grown up, it's been abused. Either we find ourselves in this one camp where we avoid the Old Testament because we don't really know how to reconcile the image of God that we see there with the image we see um, in Jesus in the Gospels in the New Testament. And so we just kind of avoid it altogether. We pretend it doesn't really exist. We start in Matthew chapter one and kind of move the story forward. Um, or else we find ourselves in this other temptation, which is essentially where we flatten the text, where the Old Testament and the New Testament are pretty much the same. Leviticus 17, verse 34, weighs the same as 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, or whatever it might be. Um, and in doing so, we kind of miss the overarching arc and the narrative. But if we are to rescue and redeem not only the Old Testament, but the way that we handle it, um, it becomes more about us seeing that the Old Testament is specifically there as these signposts in, these, in the mist, these, these arrows, these inclinations that point us deeper into the story of God, that we realize that, that, that Jesus is the full revelation of what God's really like. Um, that the, the Old Testament, the stories, the poems, the prophecies, all these things are the partial revelation of God, but Jesus himself is the full revelation. And one of the ways um, that I love to do this kind of in my own study and trying to understand the story, it's almost as if you see the whole Old Testament as a series of hundreds of strings that are laid out kind of from Genesis chapter one, and they kind of stretch all the way to this accumulation in the cross. And I would have built this for you, but I don't think a hundred strings sitting next to each other is particularly interesting. Um, so just use your divine imagination. Um, but there's all of these strings, all of these different ways that we can follow the story that give us this slightly different facet of what it is that God's doing as he's revealing himself, first of all, to Israel and then through Jesus for the entire world. And so what I wanna do today is to pick up one of those particular strands and kind of lift it up out of the fray because I think it's such an important way for us to understand the story of God. And so when we come to Jesus, we know what it is that we're really looking for. And what we're gonna be doing today is using a couple different techniques when we're redeeming the Old Testament. The first is that there's gonna be a prophecy involved, which is some sort of word that's given through a prophet to kind of point to this is what God is going to do. This is what it's gonna look like when God rescues the world. And the second thing we're gonna do, which is far more wonky, is use antitypes. Antitypes are essentially uh, characters or events or moments in the Old Testament that in some way are a foreshadowing of who Jesus is going to be in his fullness. And we're gonna be looking at two antitypes in particular, first through Adam, and then through this very strange image of a bronze snake, and show how this all kind of weaves together. So it totally makes sense in my head. My profound apologies, if it doesn't make sense to you when we're done, you can come and talk to me afterwards and we'll figure it out. But this is kind of the, the, uh, the verse that I wanna to use to kind of tie everything together. And it's actually, um, it's beautiful. The Lord gave me this a couple of weeks ago, and then Aaron uh, Ross from Southeastern that spoke last week used um, this larger passage, and so I want to hone in on something that he had brought to us. This is from Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5. 
Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. And so let's pray. I'm gonna pray for you, and if you can pray for me. It's just started to feel sick as I got here. Not today, Satan, we're gonna get through this. But y'all are gonna pray for me because I need it, okay? Let's do this. Heavenly Father, we testify to the reality that you're here and that you're with us and that you are for us, that you are not against us. Lord, we testify to the truth that it is no accident that each one of us are here tonight, but there is something in your face, something in your name, something in your heart that's drawn us here. And we have this expectation. And, and Lord, even as you revealed to me this morning, you know, often we're praying about us having the expectation to see you move. But Father, I really genuinely feel your heart and your desire and your excitement and your expectation of how we're going to open ourselves to you, that you want to do business here tonight, Lord. Lord, teach us how to trust in you, to trust in your goodness, that wherever you lead us tonight, whatever you reveal to us, it is good because you are good and that you want to do business, you want to do work in each one of our own lives. And so Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, amen. So that last line from Isaiah, by his wounds we are healed. That's the, that's the strand, that's the piece of the story that I wanna pick up tonight. By his wounds, we're healed. I think that gives us a beautiful image of what it is that God was doing through Jesus, not just through his life, but on the cross and then through into his resurrection. So I wanna kinda of begin here. I think this is so important. God doesn't simply see evil people needing to be punished. God sees sick people needing to be healed. I think this is incredibly important. This is a shift that needs to happen for so many of us because the image of God that has been betrayed for us and indeed that the Old Testament has often been used to prop up because you can do that if you want is an angry God who looks at you and says you are fundamentally broken and you're doing everything wrong and I'm going to do whatever I need to do in order to punish you, in order to burn out of you all the nastiness. But what I want to actually reveal today is that God does not see you as fundamentally evil and broken and wrong, but he does see that you're sick, and because he loves you, he wants to bring healing. And if we're going to start anywhere, we should start in the beginning. We're going to be looking at the story of Genesis 2 and 3 uh, with the story of Adam and Eve. And so Genesis 1 is essentially this poetic telling of the creation of the earth that takes this very cosmic perspective. It's very much about the perspective of God. It's very much, much about us seeing that he has planned, that he has care, and that he creates out of a fundamental goodness. And then we see towards the end of the poem that God creates mankind in his own image, and he says this is very good. When we enter into Genesis 2, we're not so much seeing a continuation of the story, but we're actually seeing a retelling of the story. That Genesis 2 is also a creation narrative but it has a whole different purpose. And spoiler alert, it's the last verse in chapter two. It says something along the lines of, therefore a man shall leave his family and be, uh, in the King James, maybe cloven to his wife, which is a wonderful word. Um, we need to be cloven probably a lot more than we currently are. Um, but a man is, 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 is it be, two flesh has become one. This is kind of the purpose of Genesis two. 
And so what we find in this story is that God begins creation. He, he kind of, you know, he creates the earth and he's getting rolling and he takes uh, the humus, it says in, the, in, in some translations, or the dirt. He grabs up the dirt and he breathes into it and he creates Adam, the first man. And I love even that imagery that's saying that mankind is essentially created out of the dirt of the earth, the tangible, the material reality, but that it's invested with the breath of God. It's animated by the life of God, by the spirit of God. I've said many times before in Hebrew, the word for breath is the same word for wind, and it's the same, uh, the same word for uh, spirit, ruach. It all means the same thing. And so God breathes into the humus, into the, the fundamental elements of the material reality, and he creates man. And he takes that man, and he places him in this garden, this place of absolute beauty and perfection. Nothing wrong with it. There's one little tree that he's got to avoid, but everything else about this place is phenomenal. And then there's this very curious verse. Uh, verse 18, it says, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Uh, the, the suitable helper, it means kind of like mirror image. And so what we find is that God brings the entire animal kingdom before Adam, and he kind of marches the animals out in front of him one at a time, and Adam names them, which is kind of this idea of this, some sort of attempt at a relationship, but there's no animal already in God's good earth that can rise up to the level of who Adam is to really meet him in that and to be that mirror image for him to be that kind of community that, that God recognizes Adam needs. And so, of course, he creates Eve. He creates the first woman. That she's not subservient like the rest of the animals, but that she's actually this person that stands equal and opposite to Adam. And that God creates the very first human community. Now, this is the very strange thing about this verse, is it begins by God recognizing there's something in Adam that's lonely. And we'd say, how strange is this? This man has complete intimacy with God. You see, for you and I, we kind of live in that reality like Paul talks about in Corinthians. Like Now we see as in a mirror dimly lit. We get these glimpses of what God is like, but someday we'll see face to face. And so the, the, the Christian life on this side of the grave is us gradually waking up to the reality of God. Through our experience, through the experience of our brothers and sisters around us, we're slowly learning how to build that intimacy with God. But for Adam, there was nothing between him and God. He had complete access to the Father. Yet for some reason, God looks at him and says, it's not good for a man to be alone. And so many theologians have so many different theories about why this is that Adam might be alone when he has complete access to the Father, and I'm not necessarily going to go into those. I do, however, want to hone in on that idea that it's not good for man to be alone, that God recognizes something fundamental in Adam from the very beginning that, that kind of moves the story forward. And so many of you know, and when we get to chapter three, we find that Adam and Eve are this first human community that they're there to reflect and receive the reality of God from one another, that Adam's understanding of God is intended to be all the greater because he's also experiencing God through the eyes of Eve, and she's receiving the same thing from him. This is what community is for. But we find there's this brokenness. The serpent comes into this, this beautiful ideal image, and the serpent begins to sow lies through these questions, and first he comes to Eve, and he says, are you sure are you sure this is ideal? Are you sure this is exactly the way that the story was supposed to play out? 
And through the lines of the serpent, he begins to establish these, this questioning and this doubting within Eve, where she starts to become discontent that maybe the way that God has set it up in some ways actually holding them back. That how, however God has provided for them, maybe it isn't actually enough. And so, of course, she takes the forbidden fruit from the tree and she eats it, and then she brings it to her husband, Adam. And instead of Adam being that mirror image, instead of Adam seeking to be a, a helper suitable to her, to point her back to the Father, to ask questions, he becomes complicit and he receives the fruit from her. And it says that when they ate of the fruit, their eyes were open and they realized that they were naked and so they hid. And we jump into the story in Genesis three in the eighth verse. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? I think this is a fascinating piece of scripture. Absolutely fascinating. Because when God comes after Adam and Eve, you can almost hear his heartbreak, his divine disappointment, his, his tenderness that he has when he realizes something has gone terribly wrong. The relationship has been broken. And I think these three questions that God asks of Adam and Eve are so important for us. First of all, there's the question of intimacy. Where are you? Where are you in relationship to me? Where are you in your acknowledgement of me, of coming to me to see me as your foundation and your source? Why, why do you feel the need to hide? Why do you feel the need to separate yourself from me? That first question of intimacy. And it leads to the second question of identity. Who told you you were naked? Who told you that you were lacking something? Who told you that you weren't good enough the way that you are? Who told you that you needed to cover over yourself because you're not presentable enough? Who told you that you needed to hide from me in the first place? And then that third question, a question of purpose. What is it that you've done? What is this, this fear? What is this disconnection from me? What, is it, what has it led you to do? These three foundational questions, I think, are the core questions of mankind, the questions of intimacy, identity, and purpose. We see these as integral values of our church, that it's through our intimacy with God and recognizing that he is our source, that we are his children, his image bearers, that's where our identities really begin to take shape. And as you and I learn to inhabit our identities as the children of God, out of that place comes our purpose, what we're called to do. Yet too often we subvert it and we revert it. And we think it's what we do that determines who we are. And if we're good enough in who we are, then maybe we can approach God. Maybe we're good enough, maybe we're worthy enough. And we've gotten it so wrong, so backwards. And so looking at these stories in Genesis two and three, this is actually kind of what I wanna posit tonight. And, And perhaps this is a little different than what you've learned in the past, and that's okay. But sin, is a symptom of our original wounding, loneliness. I think this is why Genesis two and three are written the way they are. 
That in Genesis 2, we see that, that God says, it's not good for man to be alone. And although God creates community for mankind to understand his connection to God, to understand his connection to one another, something falls apart there in the place of loneliness that begins to lead to shame and to guilt. And what is shame except the voice in our heads that says you're not okay the way you are. You're not good enough the way you are right now. And then guilt says you're wrong because of what you've done or what you haven't done. You see those questions of identity and purpose intimately tied in to our shame and our guilt. But I believe sin is the symptom of the original wounding, which is loneliness. Again, in the story, we see this imagery that when Adam and Eve hear the lie of loneliness, that there's a loss, there's a separation from God, there's something about them that doesn't make them worthy of being in his presence, what do they do? They sew together fig leaves to cover over themselves because they think they're indecent. And I think this is such a beautiful analogy for us to understand what personality is in psychology. For a long time now, they've been operating under this idea that your personality is essentially um, a a collection of coping mechanisms that you have dealt with in order to, 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 to make sense of the world because of this feeling of basic loss and separation. That your personality is the specific ways in which you think, feel, and act as you're trying to reclaim what what feels like it's been fundamentally broken since the beginning. Another way to say it is that your personality is the, the, the solutions that you've developed to try to find love in a loveless world. And it's important to recognize in the same way that the figs that Adam and Eve used to cover over their nakedness is not their true identity. It's important for you to recognize your personality is not your true identity. Okay, some of you need to hear this. Your personality, the way that you think, the way that you feel, the way that you act, that is not who you are at the very core. It's a compensation because you don't believe that you are who God says that you are. And I think when we begin to realize that and really do the work of allowing our personalities to point us back to the original wounding in our human stories, we can really do the work of healing that God so desperately wants to do. And so for each of us, it's, it's discovering that core motivation in us. What is it that animates us? What is it that has us go out into the world and try to find love, try to cover over the gaps, try to reclaim this thing that has been taken from us? And I think be, even though we have this common wound, we've all developed very different solutions for that. And so I want us to take a moment and come before the Lord just to invite him to reveal to us something about that core motivator in our lives, but tying it to the language of loneliness. And so I want us to ask this question, what does loneliness sound like in my heart? What does loneliness sound like to me? What what does that original wounding look like in my life that's led me to a different solution than the person next to me? And so what I'm going to do I'm gonna pray and I'm going to read off just a series of phrases that I think uh, just even skim the surface of what this core wounding sounds like in our lives and our different stories. These different phrases and maybe it's something that has been specifically said to you in your past but maybe it was the subtle inclinations of a thousand people giving you this message very early on 
And that a message eventually became the way that you learn how to push back against the world, how to protect yourself against the world, how to keep yourself safe, how to go out and find love and manipulate the people around you. But until we're able to address that original wounding, all we're doing is managing our symptoms. And so I'm gonna pray and I'm gonna read these. And I, you, can, you can close your eyes and just listen. Um, I encourage you if you feel like something is highlighted to you, that you can take out your phone, that you can write a note, whatever you need to do to hold on to this, but to trust that this is the Holy Spirit speaking to each one of us. So let's pray. Um, Holy Spirit, I invite you to anoint, uh, to, to alight upon each of your dear ones here. Lord, this is where we need to know that you're good because you wanna open up um, some very deep wounds. And so Holy Spirit, we, we ask that you take us by the hand and push aside any feelings of shame or guilt, these things of condemnation that kind of hide us from you like Adam and Eve ho- uh, hid from you where we feel like we're not good enough or we haven't performed adequately. Lord, we ask you to lay all of that to the side for us so that we can begin to really see what loneliness sounds like in our own hearts. Thank you, Lord. You're only good when you do everything perfectly. You're not lovable unless you earn it, but you're not allowed to be needy. You are what you do and what other people tell you. No one understands you, so you'll never fit in. This world will cost you everything. People are essentially takers. This world is not safe. You're on your own, so you need to figure it out yourself. Only the strong survive. You can't let yourself be vulnerable or tender. You, your feelings, and your opinions don't really matter. So don't rock the boat. You see, because of our individual stories, Loneliness sounds different to each one of us. Rejection sounds different to each one of us. Abandonment and neglect sound different to each one of us, but there's still that fundamental element, that original wounding that has led us to hear these lies. And when those lies are sown at a very, very early age, pretty soon we begin to hear it all around us. And it becomes so subtle that we're not even, we don't even perceive it because we begin to respond or react to it so automatically in how we think, 
in how we feel, in how we act. We're not even aware that we're doing it. It becomes this automatic coping mechanism that we have. And I believe that because of these lies, these original wounds of loneliness, we have these basically three different stances that we have to the world around us and especially to other people. The first is that we can have this aggressive stance that when we become severely aware of our loneliness, of our disconnection, we reach out aggressively to other people. Maybe we need to, to fix and reform the world. Maybe we need to break some things open. Whatever it is, we need to push out. We need to use our energy to shake everything up around us so that we can find love and connection. For some of us, our stance is dependent, that our answer to loneliness is to cling to another person. And what happens in that place of dependency so often is that we no longer allow God to define who we are. We go to other people and we take that right of God and we hand it off to others and we say, you tell me who I am. You tell me what I'm supposed to do. Give me my value. And we cling to other people and our identities become dependent on how other people see us. And before long, we begin to perform for them, to follow them around, to to hand them over the power to define who we are. And the third stance is that we can withdraw. In a way, we accept loneliness and disconnection as the basic reality of our lives. And we remove ourselves from our own stories. We shrink back and we hide. And before long, we realize that life is passing us by. And I think all of us participate in all of these three different stances at any point in our lives, but there's one of those that just feels like home. It just feels like this is our default. Without thinking, this is where we go. And one of the things, you know, I've worked a lot in in addiction over the past several years on both sides of it. One of the things that I've come to realize is that our addictions are not the problem. Alcohol is not the problem. Pornography is not the problem. Binging on Netflix is not the problem. Whatever it is, that is not the problem. That is a solution that you have developed to the problem. It's a bad solution, but it's a solution nonetheless. And what happens when we think that our coping mechanisms are the problem themselves is that we begin symptom management. We just begin to try to manage our sin, that if we can just take care of these things, then everything will go away. But what we find so often in recovery is that an addict, we can get an addict to stop drinking alcohol and maybe they'll stop, but because that original wounding hasn't been dealt with, it manifests somewhere else and they become a workaholic or they become filled with rage. And just because we've gotten someone to drink doesn't mean that anything has actually changed in their lives. I recognize this in myself, that I'm a withdrawer. That's what I do. I finished Stranger Things 2 by 4.30 p.m. last Saturday. And I watched a Manchester United game in the morning. I only allow myself two Saturdays a year where I will just sit and just flat out binge. But that's what I do. I withdraw. I numb. I remove myself from the party. I don't chase after others. I don't find myself dependent on other people. In fact, when I'm really insecure, I hate being around dependent people. It's too much responsibility. And so whether it's television or alcohol or sleeping, whatever it is, I find this easy temptation to just check out and to numb. And I can waste so much energy trying to fix those things in my life, but I'm not actually dealing with the real problem. 
We find this so much in drug culture. This country started an ill-fated drug war about 50 or 60 years ago, and it was based on faulty logic. There were experiments done in the 1950s with rats where they'd have a cage and there, was this, there were these two uh, water bottles. One was clean water and one was laced with cocaine or heroin. And what they found was that over time, about a time of, of 21 days or so, the rat would become addicted to the one that had heroin or cocaine in it. And that was the conclusion. Drugs are essentially uh, habit-forming and addictive, and that's really the problem. And that led our country, or led our culture into this whole place of a drug war where essentially what we said is anybody who gets addicted, anybody who falls into that, in some way they deserved it. They're fundamentally broken people. They're criminals. And so we've dealt with them as criminals, people who are addicted to substances. We throw them in jail, we keep them out of decent society and hope that the problem takes care of itself. This is why we have more incarcerated people per capita than any country today. This is why we far, far, far outnumber in our incarcerated people, black and Hispanic citizens. Because when someone is addicted, when someone falls into drugs, we believe that that says something about their true essence. But in the 1970s, another scientist did another uh, experiment. He looked at this, this previous rat experiment. He said, there's something wrong in this, that these rats are in isolation. And so what he actually did is he created this rat park and it was this huge, beautiful community for these rats, and there were lots of bright balls and sounds and all of these friends that they had, and they had the same two water bottles, one that was clean and one that was laced with cocaine or heroin. And what they found after 21 days is that almost none of the rats that were in community became addicted to any kind of substance. And we're only just now, 40 years later, catching on that loneliness Loneliness is the cause of addiction in our society. It's not because people are bad. It's not because they deserve it. It's because we have a major problem with loneliness. Several years ago, the country of Portugal actually realized this because they had an opioid epidemic like we do, and they decriminalized all drugs and actually spent all of that money that they were incarcerating their citizens with on rehabilitation of helping people develop healthy habits in their lives and healthy human connections, and their drug abuse has gone down by 50% because they recognize this is a symptom to a far deeper problem. I think coming back to the Old Testament, I think this is an amazing way to begin to read the stories that we find there, that time and again, God wants to address the root of Israel's sin. God is not interested in sin management, but he's actually trying to deal with that original wounding. And it's an interesting way to read the scriptures to see that every character in some way is trying to cope with this feeling of loss and separation. In the case of King Solomon, it's about hoarding. He can never get enough wealth. He can never have enough women. He can never have enough knowledge. For King David, it's all about going out and taking things that don't belong to him. For, for um, Abraham, much like myself, he shrinks back when there's an important decision to be made and he allows the other people around him to determine who he is and what he's supposed to do and he lets it happen. He removes himself from his own story. And so we see in all of these characters the same coping mechanisms that you and I have. But God wants to address the root of Israel's sin. We find this fascinating story in Numbers chapter 21 of God trying to give Israel an image of what's going on to them. 
And so this is in that period where they're, um, they're in the desert for 40 years. They've come out of slavery, where they've been in a culture where people have literally told them, you are exactly what you do. Your, your identity is 100% determined on how tall this wall becomes or how many bricks you make in a day. And so what we see in the, in the desert is that God is rehabilitating Israel, seeking to bring healing to their story, healing to their identity, so that when they step into the promised land, they really know who they belong to and who they're called to be. And so this is the story of Numbers 21. They traveled from Mount Hor along the way to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. They're talking about the manna, that God's promise of daily provision for exactly what they need. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. What a strange story this is. But I think it's such a beautiful image that we find in the Old Testament that actually gets redeemed in the new that we're gonna be looking at in a moment that talks about the fundamental work of God in the life of humanity is work of healing, of restoration and salvation. God's salvation for the world through Christ can be understood as healing our deepest wounds. And so we fast forward to the Gospel of John, one of my personal favorites. We've talked about this several times. But we're gonna be jumping in in John chapter three in a very familiar verse, but I wanna look at what kind of surrounds it. This is the beginning of, of Jesus's ministry, and John uses these very big images, these very big phrases at the beginning of his gospel to really set up our understanding of what it means that Jesus is the Messiah. And so in chapter three, verse 14, it says this. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And this is the one that we're all so familiar with. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And I think this is key. This is the redemption to the Old Testament story. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And he goes on to say, the world already stands condemned. The world is already broken, but not because of the action of God. It is the action of man. And it's fascinating in verse 17, when he says to save the world, the Greek word there is so-so. And a lot of times, us in the West, when we hear about salvation, we think that means Jesus died on a cross, blah, 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 blah. And then I got this ticket to go to this other place called heaven when I die. And there's clouds, and there's cherubim, whatever those are, and there's harps, and it's probably really boring and very clean. That's what we think salvation is. And there's a part of it that's about eternity. But you actually find that the writers of the New Testament aren't terribly preoccupied with the afterlife. I don't think that sells on the New York Times bestseller to say, because we get so many books about what heaven's gonna be like, and da-da-da-da, you know, all this stuff, but the New Testament writers aren't very interested in that. They're very, very interested in life right here, right now in this moment. 
And we think salvation means that get out of jail free card. And there's a part of it that does. But the deeper word, the Greek word there, sozo, it means to rescue, but it also means to heal, to cure, to bring back together. And I think what John is trying to tell us by using that story of the bronze snake, that when Israel turned around and looked at the real thing on the cross, they found healing in their lives. He's saying this is what salvation looks like for us. Humanity is sick. We're sick, and we need a doctor. This is why we call Jesus the great physician. One of my favorite stories of healing in the New Testament is in Matthew chapter nine. And Jesus is walking along and there's this leper. So this man has a terrible skin disease. He's a complete pariah to his community. He hasn't been touched. He's, an, he's been ostracized for decades. And what we find, it's a very small story. It just says, Jesus was walking along and this man came alongside and knelt before Jesus. And he said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And I think even in the way that he asks, we know so much about this man's mentality, so much about his brokenness that he can't even come out and actually ask for what he wants, let alone to demand it. Because in the same chapter, we find another woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, who's in that same situation where she's a pariah to her own community. But rather than being despondent, she's desperate, and she pushes through the crowd. She's risking everybody's ritual cleanliness in order to get to Jesus, and she reaches out and takes from him. You see, they had two different solutions to the same problem of loneliness. But this man can't even muster up the courage to actually ask Jesus for what he wants. He just says very passively, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And the story goes on, and I love the way that Matthew phrases it. He said, Jesus reached out and touched him and said, I am willing, be clean. And in that moment, his leprosy was gone. And praise be to God that Jesus healed him physically. But I wonder if the deeper healing actually came in Jesus' touch. A man who has not experienced the ecstasy of another human's touch for most of his life, who has not been considered good enough or worthy to be part of society, and in fact lives in a society that has a law that came from God that says you are not allowed to touch anyone who is unclean because you'll become unclean. But we see in Jesus the face of God He says, I'm willing to touch you. I'm willing to be there with you. I'm willing to bring healing to that deepest wound of loneliness that has plagued you your entire life. This is why I think that maybe medical substitution is the best way for us to understand the cross. That through Jesus' life, he brings so-so salvation healing for mind, body, heart. But on the cross, he actually becomes that for us. He takes all of that upon himself. That in the life of Jesus, he takes the woundings of humanity. He takes the sickness, the illness. He sucks the poison out of humanity into his body and he takes it to the cross. And then he takes it to death. I think what we find in Jesus taking on our wounds and putting it all to death is that he's putting to death all of our coping mechanisms. All of the ways that you and I have learned, this is how we go out and we protect ourselves. This is how we go out and and manipulate people to get love out of them. This is how we keep ourselves from the game in order to get away with the skin of our teeth. I think when we begin to understand the cross, 
as this, this medical move of God motivated by compassion, we begin to see that God is actually creating for us a new Adam, that where the first Adam kind of messed it all up, that he missed the point. He separated himself from God, he believed the lie, and that led him to do what he did. That we find in Jesus someone who's willing to complete that story, to bring it to fruition. I think this is even what Paul is saying in Romans chapter five. He uses this Genesis uh, motif. He says this in verse 17. For if by the trespass of the one man, which is Adam, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, So also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. I think what what Paul is telling us is our starting point is no longer mankind feeling the basic loss and separation a confusion of identity, which leads us into shame and guilt, which leads us to our coping mechanisms that lead us to sin. He's saying that's not the human story anymore that comes through the first Adam. But we now have this new Adam, this new Adam that heals all of our self-inflicted wounds because of the divine presence that we find in Jesus, God fully embodied here on earth. This is one of my favorite icons of all time. It's called the harrowing of hell which is a really great metal band name. I'm gonna use that one. Somebody jot that down for me. But this is an image of the triumphant Christ, the resurrected Christ, who stands over the grave radiating the new creation. But he reaches down from that, that, that place of immense glory and he takes the hand of an old man, the oldest man in this entire painting, who is the old Adam. And when Jesus is reaching down to Adam and saying, where you failed humanity, I've come to rescue and redeem the story, to bring us all back to God, and I'm offering you that same redemption. And we see these people gathered around Jesus and Adam that represent the heroes of the Old Testament, those like you and I that fell short because none of our coping mechanisms worked, because we didn't find love, because we didn't find safety, because we didn't find power or whatever it is we were looking for. And Jesus rescues and redeems all of those stories. And he harrows hell. He takes everybody out of the place of complete separation from God and brings them back into redemption. So if you understand Romans 5 as kind of the Genesis image, then Romans 6, 7, and 8 is is using the story of Exodus. Just a couple lines from that. Paul says this, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, So the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin in the flesh. And friends, you and I read that last line very wrong. God did not punish Jesus because of our sin. God punished sin through Jesus. That should make you jump out of your freaking seats. God, let me just, I'll say it again, maybe we'll just absorb it in there, okay? God did not punish Jesus because of your sin. That is a lie from the pits of hell. 
Okay, everybody there with me? Can I get an amen? amen. Can I get someone to testify? Okay, <laughs> thank you. Then we come to the other side. God put sin to death, and so he condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus through Jesus. God condemned sin. He took sin into the body of Jesus. He buried it in hell, and he resurrected Jesus on the third day. Amen. That's why we're Christians. And this is the substitution bit. This is the substitution bit. Jesus is both the great physician and he's also the surrogate patient. That rather than the work having to be done to us, God takes it into his own body. He sucks the poison out. He takes on the cancer within himself and he puts that to death. The theologian Mako Nagasawa says something so beautiful. His wrath is directed at the corruption of sin in us but not our personhood, not at us. In fact, God's wrath is an activity or expression of his love because God desires to cut something away from us. Medical substitution makes restorative justice the default setting of God's character. Have you ever been afraid of the doctor? Have you ever had to go into surgery and you're terrified? Why is that? It's because your amygdala, your lizard brain is saying, that man's got a knife and I need to run the opposite direction. The worst surgery I've ever had to get was getting my wisdom teeth out. Some of you have much more better stories. I'm sorry, I have the stage, it's my story. And I know that feeling, that release of cortisol that makes you like a gazelle on the Serengeti when somebody comes at you with a knife or with a needle, you think something's wrong. And this is what happens to us when we see God coming at us with a knife. We think God is fundamentally angry and he wants to cut us down because we've done it wrong, because we've sinned. But it's not a machete that God carries in his hand. It's his surgical tools because he wants to cut out of us something that will actually save our lives. We need to stop being afraid of him, thinking he's coming to kill us because he's coming to give us new life. And what Paul is telling us is, guess what? It takes time to recover. It takes time to recover after a surgery. It takes time to recover after chemotherapy. But you have to believe that the work has already been done. You're learning how to live into the new creation that you already are, even when you can't see it, especially when you can't see it. But here's the problem for us as Americans. In our culture, we confuse healing with medication, and it affects our understanding of salvation. When we hear healing, we think medication because that's what we're trained to. So when we read from Isaiah 53, we say, and by his wounds we are medicated. When we read from John chapter three, we say, God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but to give us lots of pills, to give us lots of ways to avoid the problem, to give us lots of ways to manage symptoms of a far deeper issue that we don't have the courage to face. We are the most over-medicated culture in the world. We are the most over-medicated country in the entire world. And if it's not through our channels of science, it's through our what we call alternative sciences, where we turn to rocks and fairies and stars and somehow they're supposed to fix the core issue. I'm gonna get in trouble for this one. I think essential oils are great for aromatherapy, but they're not gonna make your cancer go away. It's called witchcraft, and it's mentioned in the Old Testament. So you should probably think about that. Golly. (laughs) The things I read online, you should just avoid the internet at all costs. We are the most over-medicated country in the world. We don't know what it actually means to pursue healing. We only know what it means to manage our symptoms. 
And how much now, scientifically, are we learning that our physical ailments are a result of spiritual and mental trauma? And I say this without any sense of irony. I believe about 50% of us in this room right now are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Because there have been things that have been said to us and that have been done to us that are so deeply rooted in the fabric of who we are that it has caused us great suffering, physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. And the response of the world is to give us pills that are just going to make us tune out, are gonna deal with something else, and we never actually deal with the core. Research has shown that loneliness is twice as deadly as obesity among the elderly. Twice as deadly as obesity. Loneliness is more deadly than you smoking 15 cigarettes a day. I think this is why we have a heroin epidemic in our country. I've been working on this message for at least two weeks now. Um, And I got this call on Thursday from a friend of mine in Nashville and and found out that one of my students from the the Anchor School of Ministry overdosed on heroin on, uh, on Halloween night. He broke his foot when he was in the school. This is like five years ago. They put him on pain medications, um, and he found ways even after the, the, the healing took place in his foot to find the opiates that he needed in order to continue in an addiction. Before long, it, of course, led him to heroin. And Casey Hirschman is one of the most brilliant people I've ever met in my life. He was a joy to everyone that knew him. I always used to joke that he was made of Teflon because it never seemed like anything stuck to him. He was so unbothered by the world around him and so few of us actually knew that he had this addiction. And you see, in our culture, it's so easy for us to look at people that are addicted, people that overdose, because you read it in the news all the time, and we just say, they got what was coming to them. They were fundamentally criminals. They were fundamentally broken. But when it's people that we know, when we know that the story is far more nuanced, Perhaps then we can have the compassionate eyes of Jesus to see other people's story, to see that they are only medicating because the core symptoms, the original wounding, has never actually been dealt with. On the cross, God answers our deepest questions and touches our deepest wounds. On the cross, we see God in the body of Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We see God experiencing loneliness on our behalf. We see God experiencing utter and complete existential loss on our behalf so that he can take all of that into his body and somehow through the mystery of the cross put it to death and be raised on the third day. On the cross we see that at the moment when everything fell apart because of the first Adam, everything has been offered to us through Jesus as the new Adam. And this is the thing about true healing. When we are healed to love and be loved, there is no need to sin. Is that not what heaven is like? Where you are finally free to love and be loved. Because so many of you have learned techniques that prevent you from receiving love because that's how you think you're going to survive. But heaven, is a state of being where we are so free to love other people and to be loved in return that why would we need to sin? Why would we need all of these silly coping mechanisms that we've developed over years of disappointment and abandonment? Why would we need those things? 
because we are fully, again, in the presence of our Father. We are Eden recreated, that there is no separation between us and Him, and we have complete community with those around us. God has given us the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit that He said of Himself, I will never leave you nor forsake you, even when you don't feel it, even when you don't recognize it. But He's also given us the church. We are God's solution to the original wounding of loneliness. We are part of God's healing at the core of who we are. We're so afraid of each other. We're so afraid of each other when we recognize that we are actually God's rescue mission for one another. We're actually the healing that he's called us to. So we're gonna continue in worship here in just a moment. I want to invite you to stand with me. And this is the moment where we get to be the church for each other. That we get to push by all of the shame and the guilt and the coping mechanisms and actually do business with that original wounding. I want you to turn to the people that you're with, whether it's someone that you came with or a complete stranger. And I wanna bless you with the courage to be able to, to offer them what loneliness sounds like in your heart, in your mind. Whatever it is that Holy Spirit revealed to you, to trust that was Him speaking to you, because that's the thing that He wants to touch today. That's where Jesus wants to bring a healing touch. And for many of you, that's a healing touch where there was an abusive touch. We have to redeem touch itself, and only Jesus can do that. But I want you to confess to those that you're standing with and allow them to lay hands on you and to pray for you and not to try to offer you an easy way out but to actually be the vehicle through which Jesus is going to speak life into that wounding of loneliness. And then we're gonna worship, so let's pray. Jesus, by your wounds, we are healed. We're still learning what that means, Lord. We're still figuring out how wounded we really are. And we're so ashamed of it, Lord, because we think our wounds prevent us from being in your presence. We think that they make us not good enough. We think that they make us unworthy of love. But Lord, this is literally what we see in the work of Jesus, in his earthly ministry, in his death, in his life, and in how the Spirit wants to move right now. So Heavenly Father, I ask once more, would you send your Spirit to alight upon us, to anoint us, that as we confess to one another what loneliness sounds like in our hearts, as we open that up to the church, to our brothers and sisters, that you give us the words to speak over one another, to pray over one another, where you're able to touch the deepest wounds within our soul, those questions of intimacy and identity and purpose. Lord, again, we have high expectation that you wanna move, that you wanna do work here. We speak against the lies of shame and guilt that would keep us from meeting you here and meeting one another. Lord, we give you permission to move in us and through us in the strong and the blessed name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. This has been the City Beautiful Church Podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.